Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. The result was a savings of $28,000. So we netted $20,000. That's good. The big win, though is that lowers the tax basis for future years. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, are you looking for some financing? Maybe some more money to do your fix and flip projects? Are you looking to grow your fix and flip business? Well, guess what? Got a solution for you. It's Fun That Flip. You know Fun That Flip. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fun That Flip, has been on the show multiple times. He's a friend of mine, and they love working with the best ever listeners. They provide short-term fix and flip loans to experienced investors. They've got an online platform, makes the entire process super easy, and you can get funded in as few as seven days that quick. So if you're looking for a reliable funding partner, Go to fundthatflip.com. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluff. Today's follow-along Friday, and we're actually officially recording it today on a Friday. First, First time ever we've actually recorded the episode on the day it airs. That was due to some technical difficulties we had yesterday, but here we are, and we're looking forward to bringing this to you. We have some listener questions on third-party management companies, how we work with them as apartment investors, and we also have some updates. So how do we want to approach it? I just want to dive right into the questions today. So as you said, we've got, we actually submitted a long list of apartment syndication questions from a gentleman named Tim. And he has recently transitioned to syndication. He's done a 102-unit and a 145-unit deal. Congrats, Tim. So that, yeah, that's awesome. Tim from Wisconsin. Tim from Wisconsin, yes. Okay. And he sent us 13 very detailed, great syndication questions. And we're going to try to break them up into categories and tackle them that way. So today we're going to answer four questions, most of them being related to how to work with third-party management companies. Okay. So uh, his first question isn't related to that, but he asks, how do syndicators deal with investors' questions regarding payouts since each payout will be different and it is rather a complicated calculation? I think the payouts aren't different every month, assuming that you take the same approach that we take. So let's talk about the approach that we take. We have an 8% preferred return on all of our deals. 
and we pay monthly distributions. Some do quarterly, some do annually, we do monthly. So we do monthly distributions on an 8% preferred return, otherwise known as a PREF, so 8% PREF. And we do that for most of our projects for 11 months. And then in the 12th month of that project, that's where we identify how much additional cash can be distributed above and beyond the 8%. That allows us to be incredibly conservative and make sure we have a healthy operating account should something unexpected take place with our properties in months 1 through 11. Now, some properties, we're able to do distributions above and beyond that. And when that takes place, we simply notify investors. And everyone's really happy about that. So the distributions in that scenario where it's simply the 8% on track for 11 months, and then 12 months, you take a look at what can you do above and beyond. It's simply... Let's say the total equity was a million dollars in the deal, then 8% of that is $80,000. Divide that by 11, and that's the monthly distribution that is sent out to all the investors, proportionate to whatever they put in. Mm-hmm. So if one person put in 100, then they get one-tenth of that distribution. So that's how we do it, and certain investors don't get different return percentage than others. Everyone gets the same percent return. But the amounts are different based on how much they invested. So if one person invested a dollar and another person invested $20, then obviously the $20 investment person would get a higher chunk of money, but it would be the same percent of their money. Okay. And then at each month, is that calculation done by you guys? Or does the property management company do that calculation? The property management company does the calculation after the first month because we just tell them, hey, this is our plan for months Mm -hmm. 1 through 11. And then in the 12th month, then we take a look at it. But it's really just a simple calculation. A million dollars, okay, we can distribute X more percent. Okay, then what is that percent applied to all the investors Mm -hmm. in the 12th month? Even in your underwriting process, you're kind of already starting to understand the projected returns and how the 8% preferred return is going to work. And then if you're projecting above and beyond that, how that split's going to work. And even planning out your exit strategies in five years, you're planning out how much money you're projecting to make at exit and how much that's going to go to investors versus how much is going to go somewhere else. So you're doing the calculations up front too. Yeah. Ultimately, we buy the property. We have projections, but it's how is it performing today and where do we see the market headed? Mm-hmm. But all roads lead back to capital preservation, and that's the most important thing with any investment. Ask Warren Buffett. So we want to err on the side of caution when we do deals, and this is one component of that where we err on the side of caution, but then in the 12th month, we'll distribute the excess above and beyond 8%, because in reality, our deals have a higher projection in year one than 8%. So all of them have been able to hit or exceed that. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. So we asked, do syndicators use third-party management or do they have their own management companies? Both, because it's a general question. This is a question of scale and desirability because with single families, let's talk about single families real quick. With single family 
property management companies, if you ask a single family property management company that has less than 500 homes that they oversee, how's business? They might say it's okay. They might say it's good, but they won't say it's incredibly profitable. And until you get to approximately 500 doors as a single family (coughs) property management company, you're not going to achieve the level of scale that you need. Well, the same principle applies for apartment third-party property management companies. However, instead of 500, it's 3,000. As a property management company, you don't have 3,000 doors for apartments, then you're really not making much money. You might be making some, but you're not going to be able to take your kids on vacation and be okay with splurging on some all-exclusive or all-VIP Disney passes. I know you like Disney. You like Disney. So the question with third party or your own is, if it's your own, you're not going to be making any money, and it's going to detract you from doing deals as an apartment syndicator until you get to scale of about 3,000 units. However, as with any generalization, there's some caveats. And one of them is maybe your skill set is getting your hands dirty or GCing projects, being the general contractor on projects. Maybe that's how you differentiate yourself from the competition. You know the ins and outs. You know when you go look at a boiler room exactly what to look for. You know when you look at the different mechanicals of a property. You know what to look for and you have the current team in place to do the work. Well, in that case, it makes more sense for you to have your own management company because that's part of your special sauce. That's part of what differentiates you and your company. And I believe you must be local in that scenario. If you are local in this and you have that skill set, then it makes more sense. However, for most apartment syndicators and most apartment investors, it is not a primary skill set. So that's why third-party management companies make more sense. And that's why we have a phenomenal third-party management company in Dallas-Fort Worth that we work with. So to summarize, when you look at if you should hire a third-party or if you should create your own, because believe me, whenever my first deal, I thought about creating my own. I was interviewing people, and thank goodness I didn't. Mm -hmm. Take a look at what is your skill set. And are you ready to develop a separate business, because it is a separate company, from what you're looking to do with asset management and acquiring properties, working with investors, etc.? We haven't found that that makes sense for us at Ashcroft Capital. Therefore, we continue to work with third party, even though in about a month we'll be approaching 3,000 units. So the next question is actually a two-part question, but I just realized I asked the second part of the question, so I'll stick with the first one. If a syndicator is using a third-party management, what is a monthly fee, and is that fee negotiable? Everything's negotiable. It depends on the amount of units that you have and where they're at in proximity to each other because that allows uh, scalability from a a property management side if they're all close together. The fee ranges between... Two and a half to five and a half. I think I've seen six percent, but I've certainly seen five and a half percent. So two and a half to five and a half percent. It depends on the age of the property too. So that's another variable. 
what is the business plan with the property? So how much heavy lifting is there, literally and figuratively? Those are variables that go into the fee. And when I say the percent, I mean the percent of collected income. So it's two and a half to five and a half, maybe even six percent of collected monthly income. That is the property management company's fee. And please make the distinction between their fee, the payroll, the insurance, and the health care or other aspects that the property management company will have on your balance sheet for that property because they have employees who are being employed at your property. Coming from my single-family home background, I thought incorrectly that the fee was inclusive of having people there staffing the property, but it's separate. You've got to pay payroll. You've got to pay for the people to be at the property. You've got to pay for the maintenance people. And you've got to pay the related cost to having those people on the staff of the property management company. And that needs to be taken into account. On top of that, you pay a fee, which is 25 and 5.5%, maybe 6%. So it is negotiable, and those are the variables that are involved. Yeah, those expenses on top of property management are important because, again, I thought incorrectly, too, that, oh, I can just pay someone 5% and just take care of everything. Maintenance costs, they're already the 5% and all that stuff, but obviously that's not true. So. Mm-hmm. And with single-family homes, I believe you know, I have three, and I believe I pay 8%. It's been a long time since I revisited that, like three, four years. They do a phenomenal job, but with single-family homes – you might see anywhere between 7% upwards to 10%. The thing you want to watch out for there is what additional fees are they charging? Are they charging a lease fee to lease the unit? And what is that fee? Are they charging maintenance costs to handle the maintenance costs? Are they padding those numbers? But everything's negotiable. Would the fee be different if a property management company had equity in the deal? It could, certainly. Everything's negotiable. They might choose to have a lower fee. It's unlikely they're going to have a fee that loses money or even breaks even. They're probably going to want to make some money on it, as I would as a business person, even if I was in the deal, because otherwise it's a pass-through and I've got my staff working on stuff that they could be working on in other places that would actually make my company money. But anything's negotiable. It's certainly something that it wouldn't be unacceptable to at least ask that to a management company. They could say, heck no, but you could still ask. Okay. And then the final question is, how do syndicators work with a third-party management on being proactive versus reactive on things like property upkeep, updates, remodeling units, and direction for achieving specific goals? Well, let's take it into two parts, proactive and reactive. We'll start with reactive. Reactive would be making sure that you have a weekly status call at minimum with your management company. That is to go over all the items that you need to be aware of. How are the CapEx projects going? Are you still on budget with each of those projects? How's your business plan look? In particular, are you getting the renovated amounts for the units that you are renovating or Is that above what you projected? Is it below what you projected? Why or why not? How are you doing on the one bedrooms, the two bedrooms, the three bedrooms? What are leasing more? What are leasing less? 
what are some differentiating features of your property that you should be highlighting. Are they highlighting it? For example, no other property in the area has garages. We're highlighting that. With your property, it's important to identify how are you differentiated from the competition and then making sure that the managed company is highlighting that. How many down units, if any, do you have? When are they going to be live and ready to be rented out? How many leads came in? How many applications came in this week? All these things and about 50 more are metrics that need to be tracked on a weekly basis. And if the management company does not have a software program that easily allows you to track this and you have access to, then you need to create your own spreadsheet and have a spreadsheet that they fill out on a weekly basis with those things I mentioned and then a whole lot more. So that's more reactive. From a proactive standpoint, before you even buy the deal, it's important to provide your management company with your pro forma and your business plan so that they're aware and aligned with you on what the expectations are for the performance of the property. And that's where they would either push back or shake their head in agreement that, yes, we're on board with this plan and we are confident we can hit these projections based on our expertise in the area. So before you even have the deal, you need to be lockstep with them. And then once you have the deal, it's important to secret shop the property. A best ever listener reached out to me. He's in Dallas, and he said, I'd like to help you out. I don't know what I can do. I said, I'm not sure either. Actually, yes, there's one thing. You can go secret shop our nine properties in Dallas-Fort Worth and write up what you saw, what you experienced. And that primarily helped us have reassurance that things are handled incredibly well. But then there's also opportunities for improvement. So that helps us stay on top of things that we can improve and then consistently improve by doing that secret shopping on a consistent basis. Whether it's you calling up the properties, how many times does the phone ring, how is the demeanor of the people answering, what type of questions they ask, they get your contact information so that they can build a database for future outreach or don't they, and then also have people on the ground, if you're not local, do that and experience the walkthrough. Additionally, from a more reactive standpoint, we visit the market, we visit Dallas-Fort Worth, my business partner and I visit at least once a month between the two of us. We might not overlap or we might not go at the same time, but one of us is there at least once a month. So we're touring the properties ourselves and, and being with the staff. There's one thing to add about that weekly you know, performance template or checking in with a property management company once a week is that's very important, especially early on if you have some sort of renovations plan in order to bump up the rents because the longer it takes to bump those rents up, or the longer it takes to actually rehab the project, the lower your, your bottom line, your project returns are going to be. So you want to make sure that, as you said, be proactive in the beginning to create that project plan, but then make sure you're also being proactive and once a week making sure that they're on track and you're meeting your projections. Yeah, that's when things are mission critical for sure in the first 12 to 24 months mm-hmm. and even more specific in the first six months to make sure that there wasn't any 
major assumption that has gone sideways. And when you do that and they're aligned at the beginning, then likely we'll have things covered. It's just when you surprise the management company or they lie to you and you're totally missing something major going into it too. So you've got your safety net of the management company looking at it and you messed up. When both of those things combine, then it's a perfect storm of disaster. Mm -hmm. I'd say with your management company, Frank and I were visiting our properties, I think two weeks ago, and we were touring it with our largest investor, so a couple of our properties, and we asked the management company, hey, where are we at with this budget item in terms of expenditure? And they knew it. That's a level of attention and expertise that mm-hmm. is needed for a value-add deal, especially in the 6- to 12-month range, but just in general. You've got to have on-the-ground management partners who know it at that moment in time. Yeah, we knew it the previous week, but where are we at in that moment yeah. in time? So that concludes Tim from Wisconsin's first batch of questions. Again, we've got 13 of them, and we're going to be addressing them in the following Fridays moving forward. So thanks again for sending us that really detailed list of questions. Let's move on to some up to biz updates and observations. I know you just got back from Baltimore, and you also had something about protesting taxes you wanted to discuss as well. Yeah, one tip for everyone who has an opportunity to protest taxes on a property, this is on the acquisition side. When you have it under contract, make sure that you have something in the contract. So I guess right before you put it under contract, make sure you have something in the contract that allows you to protest taxes if you're within that time frame for protesting the taxes in your particular county. Because that's what we have done on properties. And I'll give you a specific example. It cost us approximately 8000 to protest taxes while we had a property under contract. And the result was a savings of $28,000. So we netted $20,000. That's good. The big win, though, is that lowers the tax basis for future years. And that helps us basically save more money for future years. Plus, perhaps it sets us up for an opportunity to protest in future years too. So make sure that that's something that you have in your contracts before you sign on the dotted line because that has potential to save you a whole lot of money. Good advice. And separately, was in Baltimore last weekend with Colleen, met up with a couple people in my consulting program as well as an investor who lives in Baltimore, and was the most impressive experience I've ever had based on my expectations of the city. <laughs> I didn't have as high of expectations of Baltimore, but holy cow, I am in love with that city. Top five city to visit in the U.S. by far. It's a combination of Boston because it's got a beautiful harbor. It's a combination of New Orleans because of the row houses. Okay. And it's a combination of Cincinnati because everything's really old, but they keep it up really nice, at least in certain areas in Baltimore, areas we were at. And I was just really impressed. So if you haven't visited Baltimore, I recommend taking a weekend trip to Baltimore. We also went to D.C. It's 45 minutes away, Uber, and went to the Holocaust Museum, which is very powerful, and went to a couple other places. So... Baltimore trip is a kind of a fun fact for the week. I recommend that everyone go. Awesome. What about business-related updates? 
Do I have another? We did this yesterday, and that's why we're doing it again, because there's technical difficulties. Did I mention another? I don't don't think so. Okay, then we're good. What about you? So, again, I've got three four-unit properties, and I've been having some issues with the boilers. And yesterday, I had them repairing the radiators and the boilers on the other two buildings. And unfortunately, the cost was for the two buildings was lower than the cost for the one building. The one building was in really rough shape. But we're getting very into the details, but they have these little, they're called self-bleeding valves. And so if air gets in the system, it'll automatically you know, squirt the air out because you need to have a closed system with all water in there. But what'll happen is, is it'll squirt out some water with it too, and the water will get on the metal. And then if you don't rust. look at it, it'll just completely rust and corrode. Mm-hmm. So they're all rusted. So they all had to be replaced. Luckily, only one radiator had to be replaced this time, though. And again, that's 1200 bucks, I think, something like that. And I did have a funny story about one of the boilers in one property that I'm not going to talk about, but I guess the lessons that I've learned... You can't ever are, say, I have a funny story, and then say I'm not going to well, talk yeah, about it. Well, yeah, I'll mention it briefly, because I, I kind of want to. So one of the boilers had never worked before, apparently, because all the tenants were saying how their windows would frost up in the winter, and so that was the one I was like, very worried about. Like, I thought I'm going to replace the entire boiler, and they had to rebuild a lot of portions of the actual boiler... But it was just funny because once it finally was on and running hot, and I think the they were saying how the water temperature was like 50 degrees higher than what it was, and when they initially turned it on, after repairing all the radiators and doing all the other repairs, and we finally turned it on, and I got a call saying that the boiler's just making insanely loud noise, and I'm just like, oh man, like I spent all this money on this boiler, and I'm going to replace it because it's not going to work. And so I'm expecting like a, you know, a tick, 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 or a gadoom, gadoom, Oh gadoom. yeah, I've, I've heard those. A type of noise. <laughs> like I called the guy who owns the boiler company that was fixing it, and I tell him about it, and he's like, oh, he's, he's worried too. So he's like, oh, I'll go over there right now, and I'll meet you over there so we can do the invoices. So I'm driving over there. It's like a 10-minute drive, so I'm just like panicking the entire time. And I get there, and he's sitting on the front porch, and I walk up to him. It's like, so like, what's the deal? Like, are we going to do something? He goes, just wait until you hear this. So I'm like, oh, what, was it going to be loud? And so I go down there. And literally, the boiler sounds like barely audible. Like, barely audible. Like, we're standing right next to it, leaning on it, having a normal conversation. So I thought that was kind of funny. It's like, man, that they finally have heat, now the noise of the boiler's an issue. But, so that's just a funny story. But lessons moving forward. Number one, I... And so is it really, it was just... No, it wasn't loud at all. It wasn't loud at all. No. Okay. I think it was just because it had never been on before, that they just weren't used to it. And it's always going to be on. And I, all the other boilers are actually louder than this one. So much, none of the other residents complain. The boilers be quieter than the furnace I had where I lived, like my personal residence. Um, so I just think it was an unexpected thing that the villagers had to get used to, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But the lessons learned, I think I mentioned before, that if you have boilers in a property or radiators, your inspector most likely will not inspect them if he doesn't know how to inspect radiators or boilers. And so if you're getting the inspection and you're with the inspector, you know, ask him if he knows how to inspect the boiler or radiator. My inspector told me he didn't up front. I should have obviously had someone else come look at it. But moving forward, whenever I buy a property with a boiler, I'm going to have some people come through and look at each individual radiator. There's probably four or five radiators per unit, depending on how many rooms are in there. And have them look at all of them and get an estimate of what it'll cost to get it up and running. And I also wanted them to actually test the system too. Because another problem that we had is that one of the boilers was leaking. So I asked to have it fixed in the inspection contract. And they started making the fixes, but they didn't fix it all the way. And it didn't get fixed until after I actually bought the property, which is another really bad mistake. And once they actually fixed that portion, they realized yeah. all the other problems that there were, which I would have caught up front. 
as most of you just inspecting the units more because, again, even while I was doing these radiator repairs, I'd walk through the units and, you know, sinks would be leaking that I didn't see before. One of the tubs is leaking and it's leaking water down the wall into the garage, into the basement. And so I've got to address all those issues, too. And so just spending more time on the inspection when you're buying a property, especially one that's a little older. I think ours are, I don't know, built in the 50s or 60s. And kind of just focusing on the inspection period up front, not kind of just ignoring it. Like, ah, it's fine. I'll just deal with it when I buy the property. Because mm-hmm. those things add up very quickly. Like 100 bucks here, 1000 bucks here, add up quickly. Next thing you know, you're not making any money for the year. Mm-hmm. And also casually asking residents that you see during the inspection process, oh, you enjoy living here? You got any maintenance requests that I should tell the owner about? Just a couple of mm-hmm. questions like that. Or if they say, no, 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 okay, do you know anyone who might? Because, you know, I, I can let the owner know. Because you will. You will let the owner know during the process of renegotiating the contract. And they will tell you, too. At least my residents. I mean, I remember when I was doing the inspections, I saw a couple of them. It was more, they were more curious what's happening, like who's buying the property, who are you. I thought they didn't tell you. Well, no, they didn't tell me initially. Like when I was okay. first looking at the property, I met a couple of them. They were asking me questions about like myself and mm-hmm. are you buying the property? Do you represent the owners? Things like that. And then once I actually bought them and I went in there, they're like, this is messed up and you need to fix this and this. And But it's getting that information yeah. before you buy. And so I think a great question is, is there any upsetting maintenance that I need to tell the owner about? Because then it lets you know that you're probably proactive because... Again, it's really strange because the conversation I've had with residents now, they make it, I mean, it isn't necessarily my fault, like, I need to address that, but they'll say things like, I told you to fix this months ago, and it's like, wait, I bought this property a couple weeks ago, it's like, so tell me what your issue is, and who you talk to, and what do they do, and they patch it up, do they say anything, what's going on here, so, because I totally understand they're living there, and if they've got leaks and issues all the time, like, they're going to be mad, Yeah, and I can just, I'll just take it. Number know? one reason people move out. Yeah. Maintenance issues. Cool. And then I'm getting married this weekend, too. Oh, yeah, you're getting married. <laughs> you're getting married this on Sunday. Early <laughs> congratulations. You're already wearing your ring. I am already wearing my Buck, ring. Bucking the trend. Congrats. Thank you. So that's all I got. Just a couple of other miscellaneous things. So best ever conference. You can still get $100 off your ticket by about a week or two. So by Halloween. So make sure you go to besteverconference.com to get your ticket for that. And check out all the speakers who are going to be speaking there. You're going to be impressed by the speakers and... This will be an even larger conference than last year, but the quality of attendees will be just as high. Mm. And what I mean by that is last year, I'd say, what, 90% of people there had purchased multiple deals. And it was more high-level conversation, not necessarily how do you fix and flip. It's the step above that. How do you scale your business? How do you do asset protection, that sort of thing. I don't remember meeting anyone who hadn't done at least a single deal. Yeah. And finally, uh, this week we're going to do a or another review of the week. So make sure you subscribe to the, the podcast on iTunes and leave a review for your opportunity to be mentioned in our next following Friday. This week we've got Carl Myers Jr. He said that he's been involved in real estate for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And he's something new from the podcast every day. Great source of information. Well, that means a lot, certainly coming from you, Carl, based on your 30 years of experience. And I think we could all learn something from you based on your 30 years of experience. So we'd love to interview you and learn more about your journey and lessons learned along the way. If you want to reach out to our team, we'll set up that interview. Thanks, everyone. 
Theo, enjoy yourself this weekend. And Theo's going to be doing his honeymoon thing next week. We won't be doing follow along Friday because of that. Damn you and your weddings <laughs> and honeymoon. Uh, but we'll be back on follow along Friday two weeks from now. And, of course, we'll be doing the daily episodes every day. And we'll keep on doing it. So talk to you tomorrow. You want to get better at negotiating real estate? Well, how about do you want to get better at negotiating real estate for free? Even better, right? Well, go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has partnered with best-selling author Jay Scott to provide you with a free chapter from Jay's new book on negotiating real estate. I've read the book. Lots of good real-world case studies sprinkled in there, too. I love it when they do that. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever to download your free copy of the chapter today. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high-income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.